Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, well, we are dedicated to the history of warfare from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. If you come here often, then drop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history. Now, we have Gwyn Dyer on the podcast. Gwyn is a historian, a journalist, a former lecturer at Sandhurst, and he's also an Oscar-nominated filmmaker for his documentaries on warfare. He's also published numerous books, the most recent of which is The Shortest History of War, published by Old Street Publishing. We speak a little about this new book, but as more of a context for the real focus of this podcast, which is Gwyn's work on climate wars. You see, long before climate change was making the headlines around the world and the UN was raising red alerts for humanity, Gwyn wrote one of the first books on the idea that climate change places such stress on society that it can lead to increased tensions, conflict and war. This will be the focus of Gwyn's next book as well and so he is up to date with the latest data and the ways to mitigate climate change and climate wars. Enjoy. Hi, Gwyn. Thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you, James. Good, good. Where are you in the world? I know you've been travelling a lot recently. As the world opens up, you're doing research for your next project. Well, this is the first time we've left England in 18 months, but we are now in Vancouver visiting one of our many offspring who are scattered across the world, from Perth, Australia, to Vancouver. One left in England, in Bristol. Well, why leave Bristol? It is a fantastic city. How many children do you have? Five, actually. Oh, wow. Not biologically, but I acquired some more along the way. You know how it is. Absolutely. Yes. Fantastic. Well, Vancouver is also a beautiful city as well. I can see why you'd want to move there. How long are you in Vancouver for? We're here for another two weeks, then we're home. Oh, brilliant. Well, enjoy it because I'm in London right now and I can tell you what, Summer has ended, Gwyn. It is very cloudy outside, so enjoy as much as you can while you're up there in Canada. Tell us a little bit about your latest project, actually. I know you've got a um, brand new book out. Tell us a little bit about that before we go into our main topic about climate wars. 
Well, the new book is called The Shortest History of War, which is a series of books, but it's quite apt because actually I did a long book about war about 30 years ago when I did a television series about it too. A usual sort of 100,000. And somebody came to me, publisher, chap called Ben Yard Buller, and actually said, would you do a book of 50,000 words and I'll give you some money, which is actually a rather attractive prospect. I mean, you know, I already wrote it once. It's a bugger. I mean, cutting your own precious words down from 100,000 to 50,000, bayonetting all your babies along the way is not actually fun at all. But it's a wonderful book. Was it intellectually useful for you, though? What did you end up focusing in on? What was the main message that remained in the book? Well, actually, that it is a social behaviour. I mean, we give ourselves reasons for doing it, you know, the war of Jenkins ear and so on. But it is in a deeply ingrained social behaviour. In fact, it predates human beings biologically. I mean, our evolutionary ancestors, quite a long way up the tree, also wage kinds of war, have tribes which are hostile to each other, territorial, all the rest of it. And you can track it down, you know, egalitarian until we get into the civilizations and then tyrannical for a long while, but always war. So if you want to approach it, that's the way you approach it. The, the famous anthropologist once investigated a tribe in Brazil who fought all the time. I mean, there were sort of 3,000 people, and there were 30 different villages, all of which were at war all the time. And you'd have thought someone said, well, if they're all at war all the time, there's something going on here besides proximate cause, the last straw that caused the war to break up. But no, he said they always explain the wars as being about women. <laughs> but they're not. They're a system. They're part of the way we do things. So it's obviously time we stop doing it that way because the damage has gone rather high recently. But that's the way you've got to approach it. I mean, I think, you know, there's lots about tactics and strategy and all the rest of it in there. I used to teach at Sanders, so I'm allowed to talk about that sort of thing. But no, it's really about the institution and the social custom of war. The institution and the social custom of war. And then there's kind of that, what you may deem to be a natural compulsion as well. The brutal fight over what it means to be civilised. And then that comes down to some of the basics of ensuring that you have the best resources and fighting over territories and land and wealth and people, as you mentioned, you know, this is the age-old compulsion of humanity. Are we ever going to see it end, Gwyn? Competition over resources won't end, but you can try to modify the way that the competition is conducted. And in fact, we do in many, many different domains. We have discovered that actually you don't have to bludgeon people to death. You can make a deal. So, no, I'm not totally pessimistic. In fact, we've had the longest period without a war between great powers since sometime in Sumeria in the last 75 years. So that's hopeful. I mean, you know, there's a real disincentive to going to war when the likely outcome of war between great powers is nuclear war. So there is a learning curve, and I'm not sure quite where we are on it. But, I mean, until 100 years ago, approximately, First World War, say, most people thought war was a good thing. I mean, you needed to win, but it was glorious and honorable. And I have not met anybody in a long time who thinks that. There's a shift. And we now actually talk about deterrence in a serious way, and it kind of works. It still requires large amounts of weapons, 
which is always a bit tricky and dangerous. But nevertheless, I mean, we're going to have weapons anyway. At least let's have the idea of deterrence rather than victory. Hardly anybody in relations between the great powers talks about victory anymore. We don't talk about victory anymore, and nobody imagines that war is profitable anymore. I mean, perhaps arms manufacturers, that's always been a bit, you know, they were not the tail that wagged the dog, they were the tail. And besides, they never needed wars, they just needed the threat of war. That gives you the contracts. So I don't really believe that arms manufacturers are deeply involved or the military-industrial complex, as we call it now. It lives off the fear of war, but it doesn't require war to prosper, and I don't think it's the driving force. I mean, there is still the international system. You know, you're on your own. If you aren't armed, you may go under. All these old perspectives still persist, but we don't fight wars between major powers anymore. Hasn't been a war between a great two great powers since 1945. And that is an incredible achievement when you think about it, especially when you look back over the hundred years before that and the hundred years before that and the thousand years before that. that Exactly. War has been that ever present in human society. But I just wonder, and this is where we come to our topic of today, and this is about climate change, climate crisis and climate wars. The IPCC has, this is the UN's panel on climate change, has said that the world is on red alert. And this is something that has come to dominate our headlines every single day. Wildfires, starvation, social upheaval, flooding nation states, disagreeing on how to approach climate change, and then clambering in other parts of the world, such as the Arctic, over opening resources as the ice melts up there. Is climate change something that is at risk of derailing this long peace between great powers? And I ask you this, Gwen, because, of course, from as early as 2010, when we were all probably still worrying about many other things, perhaps the war on terror, you were trying to turn our attentions to climate wars. And in 2011, you published one of the first books on this, which was Climate Wars, The Fights for Survival as the World Overheats. So... Drawing on your vast knowledge about this, as we hit this point now of crisis, no longer climate change, climate crisis, does it risk derailing this international system that we've built up? Uh, The short answer is yes. But of course, then you have to measure how big the risk is. That's always the real task. I would say this. When I wrote that book, which was quite a steep learning curve on the climate front, you know, you have to interview a lot of climate scientists and learn a lot of things. I thought the risk was quite high because actually what's going to happen, and I think it's too late for it not to happen, is that we're going to go to at least two degrees higher low average global temperature, twice what we've got now in terms of excess heat. And that will cause huge disruption. And some of the disruption could lead to war, particularly the fact that the impact will not be equal in all parts of the world. While there are already impacts, wildfires and so on, in the temperate zone, the northern hemisphere, the big impacts are already visibly in the subtropics and the tropics, where 70% of the human population lives. And there, the two degrees of warming is piled on top of already much higher temperatures, And you're getting into situations where the temperatures 
can exceed the tolerance range of the major crops you grow by a sufficient margin to destroy them. I mean, the plant probably won't die, but there won't be any crop this year. You know, the rice grains won't form, that sort of thing. And most of the food crops grown in the tropics, the big ones, are actually crops originally domesticated in the temperate zone. You know, wheat was domesticated in a relatively hot area, which is the Middle East, but corn maize was domesticated in the Valley of Mexico at 8,000 feet up. And rice was domesticated in central China at about the same latitude as Switzerland. So when they're in the tropics, they're already quite close to their temperature tolerance range. But since they're much more productive than native tropical crops, they have superseded them. There's a lot more rice, wheat, and corn grown in the tropics than native tropical crops like cassava because it's just so much more productive but they're all near the top of their temperature tolerance rate. When you load the warming on top of that, and of course it's not two degrees of warming, that's the global average over a planet that's two thirds water. So two degrees higher average global temperature is already three degrees higher minimum over land areas. And now you load that on top of a temperature that's already in the tropics, pretty close to the tolerance range. And what you get is starvation, famine. And famines are usually dealt with by importing food from somewhere else. But in fact, if you are suffering global famine through the whole of the tropics, and there are some signs that there could be sort of coordinated crop failures in the major grain producing areas in the temperate zone as well, then you're looking at a global food shortage you can't solve by moving food around. And what happens then? And the answer is that the refugees start to move in large numbers. They will not sit by the side of the road like some 1980s talk about, you know, an Ethiopian famine. They have phones. They know there's food somewhere else. They know how to get there. There's roads everywhere. They'll move. And what will happen is that they will run up against the borders of countries in the richer parts of the world, further away from the equator, which still have enough food, but not enough to spare and the borders will slam shut. I think this is almost inevitable. Is this something that we've already seen starting to happen, Gwyn? There's a few scholars who have argued this, that when we had the refugee migrant crisis a few years ago, we had to understand that as being also a human security crisis, a movement of people triggered by the early stages of global climate change. Is this what you're talking about? Is this the sort of thing we've already started to see? Well, we've seen, I mean, there's been two sources in terms of Europe. There's been two sources of refugees from the Middle East, primarily from war. And there may be some food implications. There was a crop failure in Syria in 2012, but mainly by the threat of war. In terms of the migration from Africa, particularly from the Sahel zone, just south of the Sahara, that's climate change. That's the eldest son being sent off to Europe because the family farm is dried up and blown away. And the only source of income for the family in Senegal or whatever is send a son to Europe, hope he gets there and sends money back. And of course, it's here in the Sahel, in countries like Niger, where the European Union and the United States have invested vast amounts of money 
to combat terrorism in that region, the, the, the move of ISIS from the Middle East down into Africa, but also the rise again of Al-Qaeda in that region, but also to create Niger as a transitory border, a remote border almost, of the European Union, to invest in vast amounts of high-tech systems that will ensure that people can't move from sub-Saharan Africa through Niger as a traditional transit area up to North Africa and into Europe. So is this something that European states and the West are already readying up for? Of course they are. There is a phrase that's used inside government in the United Kingdom, which is not actually in the public press, but it's uh, very interesting. It's lifeboat Britain. I mean, I've been to closed government conferences on climate change in London where everybody uses this as shorthand for a scenario. And the scenario is that the climate crisis has caused famine in large parts of the neighborhood of Europe, that is to say, Africa, North Africa, Central Africa, the Middle East, and that the refugees are banging on the door. And they are banging on the door in such numbers. Now we're getting into fairly paranoid territory, but stay with me. They're banging on the door in such large numbers that the door is falling down. And so southern Italy's gone, southern Spain is gone, Greece is gone. I mean, we moved the borders to the Alps and the Pyrenees, something like that. And so the final defense, of course, is the ditch. It is the channel of the North Sea. And lifeboat Britain is capable of shutting all those refugees out. And surviving if we were to grow enough crops in the UK. I mean, basically, both England and Northern Ireland are places where you can grow food almost anywhere. I mean, 90% of the land can grow something, which is rare. Most countries, it's 10, 20%. And if you made a deal with Ireland and had access to that too, of course, you had to give them Northern Ireland, you could see a situation where the United Kingdom and Ireland, the British Isles, 70 million, 75 million people, could conceivably, if they didn't eat any meat, survive if they don't let anybody else in. But it's the lifeboat analogy. Lifeboats are great things. If the ship is sinking, it's the very thing you want. But if too many people get in the lifeboat, that sinks too. So... That's the lifeboat Britain analogy. It is paranoid, it is extreme, but it shows you where this kind of logic leads you. It does, and it's almost quite inhumane logic, isn't it? It's very much a doomsday scenario that you're spelling out. It it doesn't make me feel particularly comfortable, and you'd hope that it's used as a way to illustrate the fact that it is a worst-case scenario and that we need to make sure that there is far more planning in place before that to ensure that we address this climate emergency and we maintain a level of humanity and dignity across all countries. I share your views entirely and your sentiments, but you show me where we are, in fact, increasing food production locally in the United Kingdom. Show me where the you know, sort of measures are being put in place to stop the emissions of the carbon dioxide rising. They've doubled since we got worried about this. Annual yeah. emissions are twice what they were when we first made this a major problem, created the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and so on. And they'll double again by 2050 at the current rate. And you'll go right through two degrees, probably through three degrees. And even the IPCC itself recognizes that. This stuff happens and that doomsday scenario is no longer improbable, distant and all the rest of it. It actually happens. 
And we can draw on history here as well to turn what might be seen as hyperbole into something with some historical resonance. We can look back to the Laki volcano in southern Iceland, which erupted over an eight-month period in 1783-84, and it spewed lava and poisonous gases and devastated the island's agriculture and killed so much of its livestock. But the amount of toxic gas and waste that it spewed into the air, of course, set a trigger across Europe where you had a follow-on of famines and social disruption that they're now saying led in part to the French Revolution. So it's here that you can link vast climate emergencies to the destabilizing of societies. Well, you can do that. You can link a number of volcanic eruptions and other disturbances in the atmosphere. The Little Ice Age of the early 1600s was probably triggered by the fact that 90% of the native population of the Americas was killed by European infectious diseases in the course of the previous century, the 1500s. Well, all of those people were farmers. 95% of the population of the Americas were farmers. And all their farms are abandoned. And the trees come back. And as the trees go back, they absorb enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that by 1600, you're seeing a serious drop in global temperature, which it gives you, together with some other factors, the Little Ice Age, which undoubtedly, over the course of the first half of the 17th century, 1600s, led to a significant number of unpleasant disturbances, like the Thirty Years' War. <laughs> was that a factor? Yes, of course it was. I mean, you know, it was a far more tumultuous period than the ones before or after it. And it probably was climate-related to a significant extent. So when this stuff happens, you know, you get the year without the summer when Krakatoa erupted in the 1800s. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There needs to be a real... I don't know if you can do it statistically or you have to do it based on empirical case studies, but a way to see this correlation between climate emergencies that have happened over the long durée of history and the rise of conflicts that have happened afterwards. And we've started a project at my university called the Climate Change and War Project, and we're looking in part at some of this. But is there anything you can recommend out there that people should read on this? Of course, your good book. Um, well, there's my own book, but I think it's still in print. <laughs> it's old now. No, you can buy my next book, which will be out, I think, sometime in the spring. All the evidence will be Indian. By then, we'll have had the Glasgow Conference in October. Yes late October, November, we'll know what has been done, will be done, or will not be done in the next five years, and that will give us a fair indication of where we're headed. I'm not optimistic. I mean, I've been interviewing, I guess I've gone through about 40 scientists, so climate scientists in the past eight months, just running around and interviewing them on video in UK, in Germany, in Scandinavia, can't get into the United States, so you're doing it on Skype and things. And I would say if you were to take a, a straw poll of those folks on, how are we going to go through two degrees? I mean, tell me about the science, but also tell me about the politics and tell me what you think. 90% of them think we're going to go through two degrees. They hope and pray that we won't. They won't say it in public because it will discourage the punters. But frankly, that's where they think we're going. And they're frightened. I mean, the great measure of this being 
the fact that emergency measures that are potentially dangerous, like geoengineering, which were avoided, shunned by most climate scientists, even five years ago. I mean, we don't know enough. You mustn't meddle with a climate like that. You could do more damage than good, all the rest of it. You know, devil and holy water. Most of them, you can just see them gradually turning to, yeah, but the alternative, if you don't control the warming by geoengineering, is so horrendous not just in physical terms, but in terms of what that does to you, to the politics and psychology of human beings, that you've got to start thinking about geoengineering. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. So explain to us, what do you mean by geoengineering? Geoengineering is intervening directly, human direct intervention in the climate system to hold the warming down artificially. Now, obviously, in the end, you've got to stop your emissions. You can't go on loading the atmosphere up with this stuff, but it's going too fast. The system is too big and cumbersome. We can't turn it around fast enough. It's a super tanker. We're going to go through dangerous warming. We've got to hold it down a bit. So here are some measures that we can do that with. And then we talk about geoengineering. It comes in two flavors. First of all, actually trying to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. You put it there, take it back out. That 
is feasible, but is actually a huge task, which would cost, oh, the cost of a major war at least, but recurrent every year for as long as you care to think about it, and also very slow to get going. And so we're thinking about things like, this is called carbon dioxide removal, CDR, and it's one of the two flavors of geoengineering. Carbon dioxide removal means, oh, for example, growing forests, which will, you know, suck carbon dioxide out of the air. Good idea. How long does it take a forest to grow? The timetables for carbon dioxide removal compared to the timetables that we are imposing on the planet with our emissions don't match. It's a very expensive, slow-moving process. Of course, we'll have to do it eventually if we're ever going to have a stable climate again. We've got to undo what we did and get that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. So you plant trees, you find ways of sucking carbon dioxide directly out of the air. I'm here in Vancouver at the moment. I'm going up the coast in British Columbia in about a week's time to interview a guy who's actually got a pilot project for drawing carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere. Is that the one where they turn it into blocks? And then they store it underground in rocks that will not leak and things yes. like that. And so there's a, a variety of methods, all of which probably will do some good eventually, but they're not moving fast enough and they're amazingly expensive. So there is the second version of geoengineering, which is called solar radiation management. It's an ugly, cumbersome phrase. It sounds like a bunch of accountants solving the problem, you know? <laughs> But SRM, solar radiation management, is stopping enough sunlight from hitting the surface of the planet to, you know, reflecting it back into space before it hits the ground to slow the warming. The carbon dioxide is overloading the atmosphere, but we are countering it by reflecting some of the incoming sunlight. That was actually regarded as almost as vandalism by most scientists 10 years ago. We don't know enough to intervene in the climate like that. And if we spray some stuff in the air over here, it'll cause a famine over there, that sort of thing. But desperation drives, and more and more people are talking about solar radiation management, not as a long-term solution. It's not. If the carbon dioxide is still in the air, your problem hasn't gone away, but you're sort of masking it and preventing wars and, and famines and refugee surges and all the rest of it while you struggle with the problem of getting the carbon dioxide. But in the meantime, we won't have a world war and we won't have a global famine. So the idea is do some sort of radiation management. There's two leading proposals for how do you do solar radiation management? How do you reflect enough sunlight? One is you inject sulfur dioxide gas an unpleasant gas, but actually we emit huge amounts of it from our industrial processes already right down here where people breathe. But now you put it into the stratosphere in much smaller quantity in the stratosphere where it will combine with moisture to create tiny bubbles of sulfuric acid. Nasty stuff, but we're in the stratosphere where there's no living things. And those tiny bubbles will reflect enough incoming sunlight to drop the temperature at the surface. This is actually technically, we know, effective because it's exactly what big volcanoes do when they explode, is put a whole bunch of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. And until it falls out, you get a drop in the global temperature. When Mount Pinatubo went in the Philippines in 1991, which was the biggest recent volcano, it blew enough 
millions of tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere to give you a one degree drop in the global average temperature for two years. And nobody died, except a few near the volcano, but nobody died from that sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. So we know that it isn't catastrophically bad, or at least we're pretty confident it isn't because nature does it. And it would, we know, give you a reduction in average global temperature. Now, you get down to the nitty gritty and it's a bit more awkward because it's probably going to move rainfall patterns around. And that could lead to you know, droughts in areas that are currently getting enough rainfall and they'll be very cross about that and so on. But essentially you can more or less count on it not causing global disaster, and it would give you some protection from the excess warming that will cause global disaster. The one I like better, and I was just up in Edinburgh recently interviewing one of the leading proponents of it, a guy called Stephen Salter, professor at the university there, is to spray salt water into the air over the ocean you don't even have to spray it up into the clouds. Convection currents will do that. Just spray it, you know, over the surface of the ocean, under clouds, in the, particularly in the subtropics and the tropics. And enough of it will get carried up into low-lying clouds. There's an awful lot of low-lying cloud over the oceans. Uh, it used to be in various navies, and I can attest to that. And it will thicken them up enough, these clouds, that they reflect more incoming sunlight. The attraction of that is that it's local. If you don't like the drought it's causing downwind, you stop pumping water into the air in that particular part of the ocean, you know, so you can adjust. And if you don't like it overall, you can stop it in a couple of days. Whereas if you go into putting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, you're basically committed for about two years to the consequences because it'll take that long for the sulfur dioxide you put up there to fall out. It will all fall out eventually. Small amounts, nothing like what we put into the air we breathe down here at the surface, but it will take about two years all to fall out and stop reflecting sunlight. So you committed yourself for a while with the stratospheric one. With the surface one, you can turn it off like that. And basically what you do is you build a little fleets of remote controlled unmanned wind-powered vessels that will go around, position themselves under these low-lying clouds, and spray enough water into the atmosphere to thicken up those clouds and reflect incoming sunlight, which, if done on a large enough scale, first would cost a great deal less than the stratospheric thing, and secondly, is much more malleable in the sense that you can adjust it's not one big global punch, it's various local things that you can move around or stop or intensify as you wish. So that one, oddly enough, it is the stratospheric one that's getting the attention. I think rather because that's exciting high tech, <laughs> you know, beautifully interesting problems. I would like to see the other one pursued a lot harder, but both of them, I think, will be employed. Well, it sounds like that there are some layers of hope, Gwyn. The book I'm writing now is a book which is trying to assess as fairly as possible the likelihood that we will need to do this stuff, and frankly, I think we will, and then to count back from when you have to deploy it and figure out 
how long it's going to take you to build that technology and be ready to deploy. And I'll frankly tell you, I think the answer is about 2025. If you haven't started working on these technologies by then, you won't have them available in 2035. And really bad things will probably be happening in 2035 if you haven't got that technology, those technologies ready. The marine cloud brightening, as they call it. Oh, and by the way, one thing about marine cloud brightening, the original sponsors of this idea, Stephen Salter and a fellow called John Latham from Manchester, who recently died, thought you could only do this under the low-lying cloud that generally covers about a quarter of the entire ocean in the tropics and subtropics. And so it didn't provide you with equal cooling all over the planet, and particularly it didn't help with the Arctic, where the warming is happening fastest. Quite recently, I mean, like within the past year, a Norwegian team thought, why don't we just try doing this in clear air? Ah. And it works. You don't need to spray it up in thickening clouds. You can spray it invisibly into the air and still be invisible, but it is reflecting sunlight because it is moisture in the atmosphere. And so you could use it locally in places like the Arctic if you want to stop the glaciers melting. So it could be a more equal way of combating this as well around the world. Yeah. No, those two methods, people go all weird about interfering with God's plan and nature. And, you know, so you mustn't muck with it or you mucked it up so much already we shouldn't allow you to do any more. And I'm afraid those are not rational responses. I mean, yes, we caused the problem, but nobody except us is going to fix it. So in that sense, there is hope. Do I truly think that we will be building vehicles capable of delivering that stratospheric sulfur dioxide by 2025? You need new ones. You can't, it's not high tech. We know how to do this, but we haven't done it. I mean, the most we've built in terms of aircraft capable of flying at 65,000 feet is a few spy planes. Now we're talking about entire fleets of large aircraft capable of carrying tons of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Well, you know, that's a 10-year project to design, test, and build those fleets. So 2025, if you want them for 2035, same thing, but maybe a little bit more wiggle room on the timing. If you want those remote controlled fleets of vessels cruising the oceans, spraying salt water into the air, which causes the formation of tiny droplets, which will, again, reflect sunlight. So there's a deadline. It's movable. You could cheat a bit. But if you don't have this stuff available somewhere between 2035 and 2040, we are going to go through two degrees of warming. And at that point, not only are bad things happening, but you're getting into the area where you can trigger nonlinear consequences. This is the word you hear all the time when you're talking to scientists. What we've got at the moment is linear warming. We put this much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. After a lag, you get this much warming as a consequence. And you can almost measure it. But there are points at which you trigger feedbacks, which intensify the consequences of what you're doing. So, for example, at a certain point, you warm the Arctic warm enough that the methane trapped in the soil and also in the seabed, begins to come out and adds to the warming. That's a feedback. 
you are not doing that. You're not melting the permafrost. You just put the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But now the methane is coming out and it also is warming the atmosphere. So a number of feedbacks like that, which may be acting in a very small way already. For example, the permafrost is melting in the very southernmost fringe of the permafrost zone across Canada and Alaska and Russia. But like maybe 3% of the permafrost zone is now melting and giving up methane to the atmosphere. Well, yeah, but at a certain point, the warming intensifies rapidly because now this methane is also causing warming and you could double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere just by melting all the methane. It would take a long while, but it would be runaway. Now you can't stop it. And that's where we get to that kind of famous phrase now of a, a tipping point. A tipping point, exactly. And most of the tipping points, there's a very good paper. I've interviewed everybody who did it. came out about two years ago. You can actually look it up. It's called trajectory. Just go in climate trajectories and you can Google it and it is readable. And this was a bunch of scientists, most of them British and German but or Swedish, but a couple of Americans as well, who tried to figure out where the tipping points actually were. And do they come in cascades? You know, one triggers another, triggers another, triggers another. Oops, you're over the edge now, boys. And the reckoning is that until two degrees, you're probably not tipping any unstoppable and big tipping points. But between two degrees and two and a half degrees, higher average global temperature, they take off. And you have probably at this point gone beyond controllability. Now, maybe if you do urgent, huge scale solar radiation management, you can still hold, but you're dealing with a climate that's rapidly trying to warm and how much sunlight can you reflect to counter that. So much easier to do if you act before you hit the tipping points. So, I mean, that's where we are in a sense. And I can think of better places to be, but we're not at the point of despair yet. I do think you can emerge from a fossil fuel-driven global economy over time, but it still accounts for 80% of our energy use at this point. And most of the impact on the global climate is from carbon dioxide release. The other big issue is, frankly, cows, you know, which is where about half of the other warming gas, in this case, mostly methane, comes from. Mercifully, you know, this is hitting at a point where we have alternative technologies. If this had all happened in 1960, we would have been absolutely screwed. We had no alternative technologies to turn to, and now we've got wind, we've got solar, we have nuclear. I don't have a problem with nuclear except the price. And we have other ones coming along, geothermal, and actually... I'm not too fond about this business about growing crops and growing burning this sort of biomass that uses too much land and we have other uses for our land. But there are others. And of course, down the road somewhere, there's fusion power, which is magic. They had a big jump forward just this past week in fusion power. So these things are mostly available and there's even better ones on the horizon. But if you don't get the warming under control, none of this is going to work because you're going to have famines and refugees and wars, and it will not end well. Well, Gwyn, I think that's an important message for us to take away. As we see conflicts 
erupting around the world over the next 5, 10, 20 years. I think we should all be looking for the underlying causes relating back to climate change instead of the more immediate superficial reasons behind it. And of course, all push as much as possible for our elected representatives to invest in these technologies that you have outlined. But tell us, where can people buy the new book? Well, they can't yet. I haven't finished it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it will be out, I hope, by early next year, though the current publication plans say later next year. But I'd like to get it out within two or three months of the end of the IPCC conference in Glasgow. Because by then, we'll know where the cards lie. And, you know, you can talk about this next five years with some confidence. But it will be called planetary maintenance engineers. And the reason is because it does end up being about the necessity to consider geoengineering. And the phrase comes from Jim Lovelock, the guy who originally came up with the Gaia concept about 40 years ago, now incorporated into mainstream science as Earth system science. But he said 40 years ago, not even talking about climate change, just talking about the general pressure on the global system of 10 billion people, which is where we appeared to be heading for then and are still heading for today. He said up to about 10 billion people, we still live in a Gaian planet, one which is basically self-regulating. Past that, you are going to have to manage it yourself and you will have the undesirable job of planetary maintenance engineer shackled endlessly to this contraption called Spaceship Earth, in which you are responsible for maintaining all the cycles, planetary maintenance engineers. That is incredible and such food for thought. And in the meantime, people can go and buy Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, and your latest book, The Shortest History of War. Gwyn, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. Take care, James. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.